We're back in our message series on the book of Exodus, and we've slowed way down in chapter 20 to look at the famous Ten Commandments in greater detail. They're also known as the Decalogue or the Law of God, and I think Decalogue is my new favorite word, although I must admit it has not come up very much in everyday conversation. And while keeping these Ten Commandments does not save us, only faith in Jesus can do that. They do illuminate for us the way God designed us to work as people in relation to him and each other. These precious instructions tell us how we can experience life and freedom to the fullest degree. And today we're going to be talking about commandment number seven. It's controversial, and it's not talked about a lot in the church, and that's because We don't naturally like to talk about things that might be awkward or bring up points of pain in people's lives. And if you're a pastor, you're not going to spend all week thinking, man, I wonder what I could talk about that would potentially make any first-time guests feel really, really uncomfortable in my church. But as a pastor, I have to be committed to teaching the truth. And as Christians, we all have to be committed to speaking the truth. And so that's, that's what I'm going to do today. We're going to be talking about adultery. And for some, this might be incredibly painful. But if that's the case, it only proves why it's so important that we talk about this. Because we don't want to see our brothers and sisters go down that same path of pain. So listen, if you have kids here and you're not comfortable with them hearing this message topic, I understand this is your little break to frantically rush them out the room. If you have teenagers, I encourage you, let them hear this. Because the last thing we want is for our children to grow up, make some of these mistakes and say, nobody ever told me. Nobody ever talked to me about this. This never came up in church and it's become one of the biggest issues in my life. Let them hear about this. Not all truth is easy to talk about, and so this is an opportunity for us to talk about some very difficult truths. I I miss you guys so much. I miss speaking to you live so much, but I have to confess, this is one message. I am so glad that I don't actually have to do this message in front of live people right now. This is such a blessing for me, and I've realized I need to teach every difficult message I can think of during this time while I don't actually have to look anybody in the face while I teach. And so after that humorous anecdote, which was designed to give you a little bit of time to get your kids out the room if you need to do that, let's take a look at Exodus 20:14, the seventh commandment. The Lord says plainly, you shall not commit adultery. Let me be clear. At this time, the Lord was using the term adultery to refer to any sexual activity with someone other than your heterosexual spouse. That's the definition of adultery as God is using it right now at this point in time. It refers to any sexual activity with someone other than your heterosexual spouse. Jesus himself would actually affirm this in Matthew 19 when he said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The term is adultery. 
It's not having an affair. It's adultery. We don't use that word societally anymore because it sounds so unpleasant as it should, as it should. In the Old Testament law, the penalty for adultery was death. In Exodus 20.10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. So when the Israelites were faithfully applying the law, there were not a lot of serial adulterers around. And the reason I point that out is because I want us to understand that God takes adultery very seriously. That's the point I want to make. Write this down and then I'll explain it. Not all sins have equal earthly consequences. Not all sins have equal earthly consequences. Because sometimes we love to say, hey, listen, all sin is equal in the eyes of God. And yeah, yeah, that's true. And any single sin apart from Jesus separates us from God forever. But listen, all sin is not equal when it comes to the earthly consequences. Loitering outside of 7-Eleven illegally is not going to damage your life the same way adultery will. Hopefully this is obvious to all of us. And a study I would encourage you to undertake is looking into all of the actions, all of the sins that carry the death penalty under Old Testament law. Because each of those sins is especially egregious to God because of the damage it does to us and to others. And if you'll compile that list, I guarantee there's going to be some things on there that you might think are not that serious. But God says they're deadly serious. And it's worth taking the time to look at those sins and ask, why does God take this so seriously? How does this damage me and damage other people to such a degree that God says this deserves the death penalty? That can be your personal Bible study treasure hunt for this week. And one of the sins that God says is deadly serious because it causes massive devastation is adultery. Just this week, I was talking to some friends, not Christians, and I was telling them that I was researching this stuff for this message, and I was sharing the shocking statistics I had learned about infidelity, and one of them just shared with me. She said, I've had to explain to my dad that when he made the decision to cheat on my mom, even though he didn't realize it, he was making a whole bunch of other decisions at the same time. When he made the decision to cheat on my mom, he was making the decision to not see his grandkids very often anymore. He was making the decision to not join the family on our summer vacations. He was making the decision to not be with us on Boxing Day. He was making a whole bunch of other decisions, even though he thought he was only making a private decision between him and this other woman. Divorce is devastating. To families. It's devastating. And the only reason we don't say that loud very often is because we don't want to feel bad about our own divorces and we don't want other people to feel bad about theirs. But as I said at the beginning of this message, if you're a believer and you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will want them to know the truth that divorce is devastating. In Matthew 19.9, Jesus tells us that under the new covenant, 
the penalty for adultery is divorce. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we're not going to get into all the intricacies of that in this message. The point I just want you to take from that is that adultery does not mean you have to get a divorce. It means that you have the option to get a divorce. God's desire for every marriage ravaged by adultery is restoration. But restoration requires two people. It requires repentance from the offender, and it requires forgiveness from the offended. And sometimes one of those ingredients is missing, leaving divorce as the only option. So write this down. God's desire for wounded marriages is reconciliation, which is possible when there is repentance offered by the offender and forgiveness offered by the offended. In Psalm 128, David likens a wife to a fruitful vine. You know, vines take a while to grow. They need light, they need water, they need care and attention, and a lot of patience. It's a great picture of what it takes to build a great marriage. But if you sever a vine, if you carelessly and foolishly somehow cut it off at the base, you'll kill it. There will be nothing you can do to immediately repair the damage. You can't just pick up the two pieces and try and shove them together or glue them together. It's done. It's done. The leaves may look green for a while, but soon they will begin to wither because the vine is dead, even though it may not know it yet. That's a picture of what adultery does to a marriage. But there's hope because if you'll go back to what's left of the vine, if you'll go back to what's still in the ground and you'll water it, you'll care for it, you'll tend it and be patient with it, it can grow back. And that's a picture of what restoration does in a marriage. And I want to say this, it's a picture of what Jesus did for us. You see, we severed our own relationship with God by sinning against him. He has offered us forgiveness. He's offered us his part of reconciliation. And our part is repentance, genuine repentance. And if we choose to repent, we can enjoy a restored relationship with Jesus because he didn't give up on us when we severed our relationship with him. When adultery happens, there's obviously a tremendous amount of hurt and pain that is caused. And in the intensity of that hurt, it's very easy to say, I'm done. I'm done. But in almost every instance, the better option is to return to that severed vine, water it, care for it, be patient with it, and allow it to grow again. Because here's the truth. If you move on to another relationship, you're going to be doing all those same things anyway. And often, the overall result, the overall life is far better when we put that same effort into the marriage we're already in. I would never encourage someone to rush into marriage impulsively, and I would never encourage someone to rush out of marriage impulsively. Intense hurt and anger affects us the same way that intense lust does. It puts 
blinders on us and it causes us to only see what's right in front of us. It stops us from thinking with clarity and thinking down the line into the future. The present hurt and pain and anger is so overwhelming. It just consumes us in the moment. Both marriage and divorce are decisions that radically affect the rest of our lives. And so it's not wise to make either of them based on intense momentary emotions. Because when two become one and then become two again, there are scars left that will last the rest of our lives. That's just the truth. The biggest lie that we tell ourselves about divorce is that, oh, the kids are doing great. The kids are doing great. No, they're not. No, they're not. That's a lie that we tell ourselves to alleviate our own guilt. You need to be real about this. It's a lie we tell ourselves to alleviate our own guilt. And again, I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm trying to tell the truth so that we don't keep lying to ourselves and our children don't keep lying to themselves as we go into the future. There's no good repeating a pattern of destruction just so that we can avoid hurting some feelings along the way. If we really love one another, we're going to tell the truth. And we're going to tell the truth to our kids as well. Because we all know that when there's divorce and kids, it's, it's never over right? It's never over. There's still the holidays. There's still sports. There's still school. There's still life that involves both parties. And you've got these children who you love intensely, and you've got your ex who hurt you so deeply. And you have these things together for a long time, the rest of your life. The idea that we can just divorce and move on with no consequences and start over, that's a myth. That's not real life, and we know this. I'm going to say this again so that there's no confusion. When there's adultery, the Bible gives the option to divorce, but God's heart and God's desire in that situation is reconciliation. Reconciliation is only possible when there's genuine repentance offered by the offender and forgiveness offered by the offended where only one spouse is willing to fulfill their side of that equation, there cannot be reconciliation. And that often leaves divorce as the only option. So going back for a minute, let's think about this. Why does God take adultery so seriously? Why does he assign it the death penalty in his law? It's because marriage is designed to be a model. It's designed to be a representation of how God relates to us. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Jesus. He is our leader. We honor and submit to his leadership as a wife does to her husbands. He loves us and he lays down his life for us as a husband does for his wife. The Bible also tells us that Israel is the wife of God the Father. And we can see his faithfulness toward Israel across history, even when she was completely unfaithful. In God's design, a family comes into existence the moment that a couple is married. Children are a welcome addition to that family, but they are just that. They are an addition to the family. The family was already complete before they arrived, when mom and dad were there. Marriage is God's plan for populating the earth, and he created the family to be the foundation of society. So in God's mind, understandably and rightly, marriage and family need to be represented rightly. 
Marriage needs to be honored and it needs to be held as sacred because it is designed to reflect God's relationship with us. So write this down. God takes marriage seriously because he created it to reflect and reveal his commitment to us. He created it to reflect and reveal his commitment to us. In Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, pens some profoundly wise advice about getting involved in adultery. We're going to take a quick look at Proverbs 6, but I highly recommend this week studying Proverbs 5 on your own. We just don't have time in this message to do that as well. So beginning in Proverbs 6.20, Solomon writes, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. You see, God's instructions about sex and marriage are not burdens. They are light and life. They're the path to a free and fulfilling life. They are, continuing in verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman or the evil man, from the flattering tongue of a seductress or a seducer. This applies to both men and women. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For, underline this, this, this is profound. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. For by means of a harlot, a man or a woman is reduced to a crust of bread. If you allow your, your eyes and your heart to wander, you're going to be roped in and your life will be devastated. It will be devastated over the long haul. Verse 27, underline this as well. Can a man or a woman take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. Solomon is saying there are some things you just cannot play around with. There are some things you can't say, oh, how far can I push things? And he says one of those things is adultery. It's literally like playing with fire. Fire is great when it's in a fire pit or a fireplace. It gives light. It gives warmth. It's enjoyable. But if you take that same fire and you move it into the middle of your living room, right there on the carpet or on the floor, your house is going to burn down and your family is going to get hurt. Sex is a blessing in the context of marriage. It's a good thing. But when it's taken out of marriage, and it's used in a way that it was not designed to be used, the results are devastating. It's like taking fire from the fire pit into the middle of the room. There's going to be damage. Verse 30, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Why? Because he who does so destroys his own soul. You see, when we commit adultery, we can't just make up for it. It's not like stealing somebody's goat where you can just go and buy seven more goats to atone for your sin and make up for it. You cannot repair the damage that you do to people when you commit adultery. 
and you can't undo the damage that you do to yourself. You see, the issue, the issue, parents especially hear me on this. The issue, more than anything, is not unwanted pregnancy or the risk of STDs. The issue is the soul, first and foremost. You see, the world thinks sex is just about recreation and procreation, but it's most about unification. It's about two souls mystically merging to become one. The defining verse on marriage, you know it is Genesis 2.24, which tells us, Therefore, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Paul told the Corinthian believers, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Paul's saying, if you go and hook up with someone, that same dynamic takes place. You become one with that person mystically on a soul level. When you commit adultery, you do irreparable damage to your own soul because part of you is given to that person. In a mystical way, your soul is diluted. It's diminished. And in marriage, that's okay because you're also receiving part of the other person's soul. You're becoming one with them in a greater way. And when they're your spouse, that's a wonderful thing. But when they're not, it's tragic. It's tragic because your soul is not an infinite resource. You cannot just keep giving it away to people over and over and over without it affecting you in a profound way. You will find yourself diminished and depleted as a person the more you do this because you've diluted yourself across multiple people. Yes, God can heal and God can restore, but there will be natural consequences that we will live with for the rest of our lives when we engage in adultery. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And marriage is one way that God asks us, hey, can you love? Would you really love this one person? Can you really, really love one person? Will you devote your life to really loving just one person? The more we know about a person, the harder they become to love, right? And marriage is the place where we are as known, as exposed, and as vulnerable as we will ever be on this earth, and yet we're loved. We're loved. And marriage is to be the place where we truly love another person, despite actually knowing another person. And if we can't love even one person in marriage, we're completely deluding ourselves when we claim that we're going to love the world in the name of Jesus. We're completely delusional. It's another reason why Jesus takes marriage and adultery so seriously. It represents the most sacred thing we have, our relationship with him. And it's where we learn how to practice real love. Marriage is where we learn how to practice sacrificial love, agape love, the kind of love that God talks about. And I'll point this out too. I've just explained that the covenant of marriage models the covenant of salvation. One represents the other. And if you're confused about the marriage covenant, let me tell you the truth, you're going to be confused about the covenant of salvation too. This is why when you see a liberal church that is confused about the definition of biblical marriage, they will inevitably also be confused about biblical salvation. If a church is confused about the biblical definition of marriage, they're going to be very confused about the biblical definition of salvation. 
They're almost certainly going to also embrace ideas like pluralism, that Jesus is not the only way to God, that you don't have to believe in Jesus to be saved. You know, the lies we tell ourselves about divorce are very, very similar to the lies we tell ourselves about infidelity. Well, this is between two consenting adults. This is private. It's nobody else's business. It it won't affect anybody else. Really? Really? It won't affect anybody else? How many of you would say that about the life decisions your father made? Did they affect you? Of course they did. Of course they did. Because life does not happen in a vacuum. Our lives are interconnected with the lives of others because the Lord designed us to be interdependent. That means we were not created to be codependent, but we were created to do life together in community with other people, meaning our actions affect other people. This is a self-evident truth. It's obvious. It's obvious. We all intrinsically understand this. Yet we are so quick and so skilled at deceiving ourselves into dismissing it when we need to do so in order to justify acting on the sinful desires in our hearts and minds. The children of divorced parents are at least 50% more likely to get a divorce in their lifetime than children who do not come from a broken home. When both spouses come from broken homes, the odds of divorce are 200% higher than when both spouses do not come from a home that has been affected by divorce. Sin always has natural consequences, and the consequences of divorce can be devastating. It's very hard to get accurate statistics regarding adultery, and I tried this week because The reason it's so difficult is because, unsurprisingly, people lie. People lie, and they lie especially about this. But in Canada, they generally indicate that 20 to 50% of men and 15 to 30% of women have extramarital affairs. 20 to 50% of men and 15 to 30% of women. The most shocking statistic I read came from a 2016 survey in the U.S., that said 78% of responders said they would have an affair if they knew they wouldn't get caught. That kind of desire is only possible, again, when lust causes us to see what's immediately in front of us and stops us from thinking about the long-term consequences and fallout of our actions. That's why I wanted to spend the first really half of this message just drilling home this simple truth that infidelity is devastating. It's devastating. And so with that in mind, I'm going to focus in the second half more about some some practical things that should help us to live in sexual purity and protect our marriages. As we've mentioned repeatedly while looking at the Ten Commandments, Jesus elevated the law of God when he taught on it. He took it to an even higher level. Jesus taught that it wasn't just about the final external action. It was also about what goes on in the heart and in the mind that leads to that action. And on the subject of adultery, Jesus said this, it's on your outlines. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says that in the eyes of God, Lusting in our hearts and minds is as bad as acting upon it. Adultery and and all sexual immorality, they begin in the heart. Before you cheat on your spouse, you have to cheat on God first. 
The first two commandments are to have no other gods and to worship no idols. And so adultery takes place when we violate those first two commandments and we make a God, we make an idol out of sex or we make an idol out of attention or affection and we worship that idol above God. We bow our lives to it. This is why Proverbs 4.34 gives us this wise counsel. Keep or guard your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Everything in your life, every action you take begins in your heart and works its way out from there. What we allow to rule in our hearts will eventually work its way outward into our lives. This is why Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? You see, Job recognized that looking came before acting. He recognized that if he allowed lust in his heart and mind, then sooner or later it would manifest in his life. And so he wisely committed to avoid looking at a woman in a lustful way, spending that extra time, taking that extra glance. He committed to avoid situations where that could happen. And that is what spiritual maturity looks like. The Bible says Job was a righteous man, and this is the way he thought. He wasn't a weak man. He was a righteous man. And he was spiritually mature. You see, those who are spiritually mature understand that issues like this aren't always about right and wrong as much as they are about what is wise and what is unwise. There are things I can do, places I can go that are not sinful. Yet because of my own weakness and sinfulness, they might put me in a position where it becomes much more difficult to avoid falling into lust. And spiritual maturity means recognizing that and saying, I'm going to choose the path of wisdom. Sadly, far too much of the time, we are fools. We are fools when it comes to understanding this. We lack self-control, and yet we make decisions as though we possess supreme self-control. We lust, and yet we make decisions as though we're immune to it choosing to consume TV and movie and internet content that fuels our lust. We're fools when we do that. Make a note of this. It's foolish to think we can conquer lust while continuing to fuel it with our entertainment choices. It's completely foolish to think that we can conquer lust while simultaneously fueling it with our entertainment choices. It's immature. That's juvenile behavior for us as Christians. Spiritual maturity does what's wise. The Apostle Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Not all things build me up in the faith. Not all things are helpful. Not all things are encouraging. Oh, that our world would learn this truth. Because as a culture, we are so obsessed with our rights and freedoms. We're so obsessed with pushing the limits of what we can do that we almost never ask what we should do. 30% of all internet traffic is pornographic. One in four women on this planet will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime and one of six men. And that's just what's reported. Depression and anxiety are soaring in a way never before seen in history. All of our sexual and biological freedoms have not made us free. They've only made us more miserable. We're less sexually satisfied than ever before, while somehow being more sexually obsessed than ever before. 
We're more disconnected than ever, despite hooking up with more people than ever. We're lonelier than ever, despite social networking. We're more disappointed with the world than ever, and on and on and on I could go. Because as always, the promise of worldly pleasure, the promise of lust, fails to deliver. It always does. And so it's not about what we can do. It's about what is wise to do. And for the believer, wisdom says that we should do all we can to steer clear of the things that fuel lust in our hearts and minds. Another stupid thing we do is give ourselves a pass when it comes to emotional affairs. Women especially are often real strong, real concrete about the fact, hey, physical affairs are wrong. But very often women have a much more liberal interpretation when it comes to emotional affairs. Well, what do you, well, what do you even mean by an emotional affair? And you know, as soon as you start talking definitions and semantics, there's a heart issue there. And the sad truth is that when an emotional affair takes place, you know, the physical consummation of that is almost always just an inevitability. It's just a matter of time. When the heart connects, the body's going to follow close behind. If you have a friendship with a member of the opposite sex that includes private and personal interactions, then you're probably on the road to an emotional affair. You're in a dangerous place. And this happens so easily because we tend to think of right and wrong instead of wise and unwise. And when we think about right and wrong, we always estimate ourselves to be much more righteous than we actually are. Well, you know, it's not a sin for me to talk to a person of the opposite sex, Jeff. You're absolutely right. It's not a sin. But depending on the frequency, depending on the subject matter, depending on the vulnerability, depending upon the attraction, it can put you in a very compromising situation. It can be very unwise. It's not rocket science. When you spend regular one-on-one time with a person of the opposite sex who you enjoy, a measure of intimacy naturally develops. And if you're even remotely physically attracted to them, the situation can become combustible. And we have to be honest about the amount of time it takes in those situations for feelings to begin developing. And here's the truth. It's usually less time than we think. But we lie to ourselves for one simple reason. We enjoy it. We enjoy it. We enjoy the attention. We enjoy the flirtation. We enjoy the chemistry. And I think this is where the death penalty comes in really, really handy. (laughs) Because I think we'd do a much better job self-policing if our lives were literally on the line. But instead, we tell ourselves, hey, it's not hurting anybody. There's nothing wrong with having a female friend, having a male friend. Spiritual maturity involves an honest assessment of our own sinfulness. If your entire plan to never have an affair is based on the assumption that you'd simply never do that, like if that's your whole plan, I would never do that. So, so that's my plan. I would just never do it. You're being extremely unwise and you're giving yourself far more credit than you probably deserve because you're saying there is no situation, there is no confluence of events that Satan could concoct and put me together that would cause me to sin in that way. There's no series of events that could make me sin that way ever. Really? Really? Be careful. Man, Joseph did not run from Potiphar's wife because she was ugly. Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It is unwise to have personal and private friendships 
with members of the opposite sex. So make a note of this. Instead of, am I allowed to do this? Spiritual maturity asks, is it wise for me to do this? Instead of, am I allowed to do this? Which is a juvenile question. Spiritual maturity asks, is it wise for me to do this? It's a different way of thinking. Paul's advice for Timothy was to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Jesus did this with Mary and Martha. There was a measure of intimacy there, but they were like sisters to him. It was familial intimacy. He loved them. They were friends. They hung out together in group settings. There was nothing sexual or inappropriate involved. You can love your sibling. You can have conversations with them. You can laugh with them, but you have no sexual interest in them because they're family. That's good advice. Good advice from Paul to Timothy. But it still only works if we're honest with ourselves. If our feelings change and they begin to move in the wrong direction, it's on us to make sure that we adapt our behavior out of wisdom. The bottom line is that sexual purity includes the want to and the how to. Because if you don't have the desire to live a sexually pure life, there's no plan that's going to work. And if you have the desire but no plan, you're probably going to end up in a compromised situation. You have to want to, and then you have to plan to be sexually pure. Now, if I take my plan for sexual purity in my life, and I tell all of you that this is what you need to do, these are some rules you need to follow, that's legalism. I'm adding to the word of God. I'm doing the exact same thing the Pharisees did by adding hundreds of additional laws to the law of God and Moses. Ultimately, you need to come up with your own plan, your own standards, your own lines in the sand based upon an honest assessment of your own susceptibility to sexual sin. Evaluate your life, identify areas of vulnerability, and shore them up. Make a plan. Have some boundaries. I should mention that by Jesus' definition of adultery, including lust of the heart, pornography is also obviously covered by this commandment. I've spoken about porn at length in some of our previous marriage series, and so I'm not going to get into detail on that in this particular message. There's just not time. For those of you who are single, I need to let you know that having sex now is an internship for adultery later. Premarital sex is practice for extramarital sex. Why? Because when you have premarital sex, there's a good chance you're having sex with someone who is going to end up being someone else's spouse. They don't belong to you. They belong to their future spouse. You're literally practicing adultery. And sleeping with multiple people, this is going to blow your mind, sleeping with multiple people does not prepare you for a life of being faithful to one person. I really, really hope that makes sense to all of us. This is why the biblical model is chastity before marriage and fidelity in marriage. That makes sense. One is practice for the other. One prepares you for the other. Sleeping around, sleeping with multiple people does not prepare you for a lifetime of faithfulness to one person. It's the exact opposite. For those of you who are married, I'm going to share this advice. And there might be some young teens watching with you. And so I'm going to save you from as much awkwardness as I can, okay? You're going to have to tune in. You're going to have to connect some dots here. And the kids watching with you have already been through so much. So married people, I'm just going to put it to you this way. Fight for fidelity. Fight for faithfulness in your marriage with freedom and frequency. 
freedom and frequency. Are you tracking with me? If not, send me an email and I'll walk you through it slowly, okay? Freedom and frequency. All the men should be like writing that down. It's probably the only note you've taken so far, but you wrote that one down if you're smart. We spent the, uh, the first part of the message, as I said, talking about the consequences of adultery because anytime you begin to talk about the consequences, it sobers us up when we're drunk with lust because when lust has control over us, all we can see is what's right in front of us. All we can think about is how good it would feel. But when we take a step back and we begin to think through the bigger picture and the long-term consequences, suddenly our common sense starts coming back. But it's not just about the negative consequences. It's also about the positive consequences of good decisions. Look down the road in your life and think about where you want your life to go relationally and then live it backwards. And here's what I mean. Think about what you want your life to look like when you're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. You know, I want to grow old with Charlene. I know that's what I want my life to look like. I want to be her best friend when I'm old, wrinkled, and we're both slightly less sexy than we are right now. I want to watch our grandkids play together, and and maybe by the grace of God, our great-grandkids as well. I want decades of laughing with her and showing her memes that I laugh at much harder than she does. So I need to ask myself, what decisions in my life right now are going to lead my life in that direction? What decisions in my life right now are going to build and create that future? That's what I mean when I talk about living life backwards. Just as we would think about saving for retirement, we need to think about investing in our marriages now so that we will be in the place we want to be in the future. And when we don't live that way, we're being very short-sighted. We're being very, very short-sighted. What if I've already messed up, Jeff? What if my spouse doesn't know right now? I mean, what if I'm involved in something right now and I want to repent and stop? My advice is to come clean before you get caught. Yes, it's going to be bad when you confess. It's going to be very difficult but it will be even worse if you get caught. In the long run, you will help your spouse believe in the sincerity of your repentance if you confess as opposed to getting caught. If that's you, there's two conversations you need to have. The first needs to be with God. Write down everything you've done and allow it to break you. Allow yourself to be genuinely confronted by the weight of your sin so that you can be genuinely repentant. And then cry out to Jesus for forgiveness. Get right with the Lord first. That's the first conversation. The second talk is with your spouse. Don't do it in a way that's hasty. Schedule time alone. Schedule time away from people and the kids. This is not a conversation to have in the kitchen while the kids are watching TV in the living room. Get time away, if you can, with just your spouse. It's that important. Ask Jesus to help you know what to do and how to do it. There's going to be a lot that you could share, but I would encourage you to share the basic details, not the gory details. Ask the Lord to help you understand the difference and write down what you need to share with your spouse so that as the conversation becomes very intense, very emotional, you're able to share everything that you planned. 
Don't talk to friends or close relatives about it. Seek wise counsel. Don't go find your adulterer friend who also had an affair and get them to enable you. Find someone who knows the word and has a strong marriage and will give you godly counsel. Someone who will tell you what God wants you to hear, not what you want to hear. And then when you share with your spouse, don't have any expectation of them or their reaction. They may become angry. They may be sad or devastated. They may go completely cold and say and do nothing. But whatever it is, you have no right to control their reaction or put any expectations on them. You have no right to demand forgiveness or grace. You have no right to demand a nice resolution to the end of that conversation. Don't have that right. I'm never surprised anymore when people lie when they get caught because you know who lies when they get caught? Everybody. Everybody. And you know what else everybody does after they get caught lying? They partially confess. Everybody does this. They share the minimum amount of truth they think is necessary to solve the problem and get them out of it. Don't give a partial confession. Don't share enough to assuage your guilt while keeping the worst things hidden. Get it all out. Death by a thousand cuts is not showing kindness to your spouse. Having a slow drip of revelation is not being kind. So as you share the basic facts and not the unnecessary details, your spouse might ask in that moment for every little detail because the emotions will be so intense. I would recommend only sharing with them what you felt the Lord called you to, the basic details, coming clean, but sharing the basic details because in that moment when they want every little detail, they do not understand that all those little details are going to paint pictures in their mind that they will never be able to get out of their head. And it is going to make restoration very, very difficult. So let them know that you wanted to get out all the big things, but not every little detail that would be unnecessarily devastating. Let them know you're open to talking more in the future, answering their questions in the future, that you prayed about what to share for now, and you'll pray about any questions they have in the future, but you're only going to share the information you believe the Lord wants you to, all of the big things, but they don't need the exact little details of how every little thing happened every single second that you were engaged in the activity you shouldn't be. If you're someone who needs to confess something to your spouse, I I know that you don't want to. You're a human being. I understand that. And I know that after that last bit of that message and that description, you're thinking that, Jeff, that would, that would be brutal. That would be unbearably brutal. But listen to me. It already is. It already is. You're just inviting your spouse into reality instead of hiding it from them. It's already brutal. The situation's already dark, but if you'll bring it into the light there's at least the possibility of restoration and healing by the grace of God. At this point, you're probably saying, Jeff, I could use some hope right now. And so we're going to do that. In John 8, in John 8, we read about an incident where Jesus was famously confronted by a woman caught in adultery. And I'll read to you from John 8, verse 2. It says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, 
commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? He said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Jump into verse 9. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Based on his own words, Jesus was the only person who had the right to pick up a stone and kill this person in this moment because he was without sin and she was guilty. She was guilty. And if you're in a situation involving adultery, perhaps you feel this way. You're exposed in front of Jesus. You are guilty and he has every right to condemn you, every right to kill you. But this is what happened next. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then he went to the cross and he died for her adultery. And he died for your adultery too. And for all of my failures, all of my sins. But part of that deal, part of receiving his forgiveness, part of having him die in your place, is the assumption that you're not going to take his sacrifice for granted. And you're going to show that by doing your best to faithfully follow after him and go and sin no more. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus says, go and sin no more, why does Jesus care about this stuff? Why does he care about this woman's private life? Well, he actually tells her in the very next verse, in John 8, 12, it says, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, instead of walking through our lives, living in darkness with shame and guilt and destruction, he wants us to live free in the light with him. And as is the case with all of the Ten Commandments, they illuminate the best way to live, the most fulfilling way to live. If you live this way, you will not have a life full of guilt and shame and regret and destruction and devastation. You'll be in the light. You'll be fulfilled. You'll have life. You'll have freedom. Some of you need to open a dialogue in your marriage in a way that you haven't before. For some, there's unfaithfulness that needs to be confessed. If there's not, for others, there's a conversation that needs to take place about how to have the kind of marriage that's protected against this kind of thing. If one of you is wishing there was more freedom and frequency, that needs to be discussed. It needs to be discussed. It's not going to just happen. If there are things you're watching that need to change, that needs to be discussed. You need to be honest enough to tell your spouse, I, I, I can't watch that. It's just feeding a part of me that is not good. Our needs need to be discussed. Do not ever belittle the physical needs of your spouse. Ever. Don't ever belittle them. Because when you got married, you made a covenant with them And you promised that you would be the person who would meet those needs for them. And they promised that they wouldn't go look to have those needs met anywhere else. 
So you cannot at the same time be the person that says, I want you to make the vow that you'll only get those needs met in this marriage and also be the person who refuses to meet those needs in the marriage. It's a covenant. It's a two-way street. Yes, we are to meet emotional and other needs uh, in our own marriage, but our greatest emotional and spiritual needs are to be met in our relationship with Jesus. So I don't want anyone to hear this message and say, whatever emotional needs I feel I have, my spouse has to meet them. No, it's not true. It's not true. We have emotional and, and other needs that are meant to be met first and foremost in our relationship with Jesus, but our sexual needs are different. Our spouse was designed to meet our sexual needs exclusively. So don't ever belittle that. If you need to have a conversation, have a conversation. Open a dialogue in your marriage so that you can walk in the light and you can walk in freedom. It's a heavy message today. It's a heavy message, but it's a truthful message because I love you. I love my kids. I love your kids. And like you, we want to see lives and families grow that are healthy, that are blessed, that are full of freedom and full of life, not burdened by guilt and shame. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. And and thank you that you speak to these areas of life with incredible specificity and practicality. And Father, when we take a step back and look at the big picture, it is so obvious. It is so obvious that your way leads to life and wholeness. Father, I pray, first of all, that you would keep us from being deceived and that you would keep us from deceiving ourselves, that we would continually be reminded of the truth of your word, that we would continually submit our lives and our thoughts to the truth of your word, that we would trust you because you are a good father who deserves our trust. Father, we pray right now for anyone who needs to confess adultery or anything related to that. We pray in Jesus' name for boldness. And Father, we pray for wholeness and healing in those marriages. Father, we pray for every marriage where there needs to be a dialogue open that doesn't currently exist. We pray for boldness there as well. And we pray for kindness and compassion to rule and reign in hearts and for marriages to be strengthened in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing on every marriage and every family represented among those who are listening to this and watching this message. You're a God who wants good things for his children. Help us to listen, Lord. Help us to listen to you. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.